we just have one more after this morning we're going to wrap up and um so i just wanted to ask and i think we're going to try to send an email out as well and remind you that next week is the last wellspring and we are going to start promptly at nine o'clock promptly at 9 a.m so if you can kind of um make whatever arrangements you can if you can be here on time i don't think we're going to have any moms over or anyone from in here over with the kids i think that's covered so we can all be together the one last time scott's going to teach the first hour and then after that um, we just want to spend the last hour together um, just talking about what the lord is doing in your life how he's used this ministry how he's used um, one another um, in your lives how you each of you in one another's lives in our discussion groups just kind of give god glory and praise and pray for one another so it's it's always been a really sweet time you don't want to miss all right so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up our third discipline ministry um uh, last week, we started with the example of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1, and Chris taught from uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, chapter 1, and she shared with us that living a life of ministry means that the gospel is our message. It's what we've always looked, what we're, all, we're always looking to share with others. It means being an uncommon messenger with the gospel, displaying God's power and spirit and conviction through gentleness, and it means being an uncommon messenger with that gospel. Um, oh, I said that. And it means being an example to others, living lives of repentance, and submitting to God in such a way that we have joy in the midst of trials, to describe or to desire that people actually imitate our example. We want to be so effective that ministry is multiplied, that ministry continues through others. And that we need to pray. We need to pray that God would raise up others who will speak more broadly than we do to think about the next generation. The next generation, what God might do through even your little ones. That's the kind of ministry we aim for, just as Paul did. And that means we labor. We labor for transformation of life. We labor to see people become servants of the Lord. And with that... Father, that is our desire, that we would labor to represent you well, that we would care for one another well, that we would love one another well. And the only reason we can do that, Lord, is because you first loved us. You loved us so much that you sent your son to a cross to suffer and die and take on your righteous wrath on our behalf. Oh, Father, thank you that that you no longer hold our sin against us. Thank you, Lord, that as Jesus is, he was raised from the grave and he has ascended and he is sitting at your right hand, we can now boldly come before your throne of grace. There's, there's amazing, amazing truths in the realities of the gospel, and Lord, I pray that we would spend the rest of our lives pursuing you, pursuing the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we would live imitatable lives all for your glory. This morning I ask for your help as, as, um, as I teach and uh, just know that I'm so dependent and I have so far to go in this. Lord, we thank you for the faithful servants and Wellspring kids and the children that are there, and we pray, Lord, that you might use this ministry to save these children, the next generation. Thank you for these faithful women who are here and who are um, just examples to me of women who pursue you. Just thank you for a building that we can come and that we can meet. Lord, we thank you for your precious word, and I pray as we open it now, Lord, that you would use it, Lord, um, to impact us, whether it's conviction or encouragement. Lord, thank you that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. 
So, if we are going to be the kind of women that labor for transformation of life in our own hearts and then in others, um, if we're going to be that kind of woman, we need to be purposeful. And that's why discipline one is so crucial. We prayerfully shepherd our hearts toward God through the word of God, and in particular the gospel. That's discipline one. It's on the back of your notebooks. And we're going to be taking, talking more about discipline one throughout this lesson this morning. But I want to remind you of the Wellspring um, verse, our, our Wellspring theme verse. Kind of sums it all up. Above all else, above all else, guard your heart. For it is the wellspring of life. So our prayer that is that after the share in Wellspring, you're better equipped to do that, to guard your heart. Discipline, too, is about ministering to those in our household with our hearts for God and the gospel. So when we're positioning our hearts, when we're refusing to be moved from there, from being established and steadfast there in the gospel, it's gonna what's going to overflow is a love. We won't, we can't help but to love and serve and impact others by God's grace. We'll be purposeful to step in others' lives, into our families' lives, into our roommates' lives, anyone that enters into our homes with the love of Christ, displaying this transforming work in our lives, having the aroma of Christ, making an impact. That's what we want to do. We want to make an impact for the gospel right there. And as we step into people's lives and ministry, that's discipline three, as we have seen from 1 Thessalonians 1, we want to be confident, we want to be bold with the right message and concerned to be a certain kind of woman by his grace as he does his powerful work in us. That's discipline three. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. We were reminded that ministry is really all of life. It's all of life. It's intentional living. It's about living out the gospel in all areas of life. And this is what we're aiming for as we gather each week in Wellspring, our purpose. It's to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that we do live out the gospel, so that we live out gospel-transformed lives. And that strengthens the church in its gospel purpose. These disciplines is something we have. We never graduate from. As I stand here, I have so far to go in each one of these areas of my life. I don't have them wired. I'm here as a beggar. You know, you've heard that showing beggars where the bread is. This morning we're going to see, you can take out your outline now, and we're going to see six gospel-centered Truths for Ministry from 1 Thessalonians 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. But in order to gain a little context, let's go ahead and back up and start reading from chapter 1, verse 5. You can follow along with me. Paul says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no more, no need to say anything, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And now our verse this morning. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, 
not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fine an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witness, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So the first gospel-centered truth that you'll see on your outline, the first gospel-centered truth for ministry is this. Roman numeral number one, ministry must be concerned first and most with engaging people with the gospel. Ministry must be concerned first and most with engaging people with the gospel. There's, there's nothing else to put in front of, in front of others first and most. Verse Verse 1 and 2, let's look back at it. It says, um, For ye yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. After we had already been already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. If there was ever a time to be tempted to change or tone down the gospel message, it would have been after what had just happened. Remember Acts 16? It should be pretty fresh. For us, we've been going through Acts. Paul and Silas were beaten. They were imprisoned unjustly in Philippi. They suffered. He says they were mistreated. And even with this kind of mistreatment in Philippi and, and even much opposition in Thessalonica, he still spoke boldly the gospel. Can you imagine that? And though I think I, I, I would have been tempted maybe to shrink back, they were bold and they continued to speak the gospel amid much opposition. Under Roman numeral one, we have three points or three observations that we want to point out as we engage people with the gospel. Number one, a gospel-engaging ministry is never hollow or found wanting. It's never hollow. It's never found wanting. When we're bringing the gospel to people, it's, it's not hollow or found wanting. That's what Paul says in verse one. He says, brethren... You know that our coming to you is not in vain. And vain means hollow. It means empty. It means without purpose. It's vain is found wanting in earnestness. And Paul says, our time with you, it wasn't empty. Or it wasn't shallow. Paul's ministry was fruitful. It had a powerful impact. Why? Well, because he says, we spoke the gospel to you. Anytime we bring the gospel to someone... It's never empty. It's never empty, regardless of their response. Regardless. So true gospel ministry is never found hollow. It's never found wanting. Now, throughout our outline, you'll see some questions. And they're very challenging, convicting questions. But they're for our benefit to help us grow and be more gospel-engaging. These questions are your homework that was handed out to you, and it might be really helpful to go back and give some thought to these later. These are, <clears throat> this homework is not um, going to be, we're not going to ask you to turn this in next week. It will be our last time, as I told you, that we meet, um, and we won't be turning in homework. So, you know, if you don't get a chance to go through it this week, even spend the summer prayerfully uh, going through these convicting questions. So the first question is this. What will happen to your ministry if the gospel is not central in your relationships? If it's not central in your relationships. Paul says that we came to you and it wasn't in vain, it wasn't empty. And that's because it was gospel-centered. You know, we're talking about our great God and we're talking about all he's doing in and through us. About repentance, about 
transformation of life in us and in others, that is not a hollow relationship. That's not a hollow relationship, right? But what's going to happen in our relationships if the gospel is not central? What will our relationships be like? They'll be hollow. They'll be empty. Can you think of relationships in your life that are like that? You know, are you comfortable with those relationships that may be empty or in vain, that are not gospel-centered, kind of surfacy? I know I can, and, and I want to grow to be more purp- purposeful in these relationships. Number two, under Roman numeral number one, gospel-engaging ministry requires boldness when surrounded by opposition. It requires boldness when surrounded by opposition. Okay, so this takes us to our first of several sandwiches this morning. And by sandwich, I mean that you're going to see in a verse um, that there's a top piece of bread and a bottom piece of bread, and these two say almost the same thing. And then in the middle is where you're going to see what we call the meat, the negative truth to watch for. It's kind of neat how Paul does this. So... Look at this. Um, watch in verse 2 how we see that, uh, how that's happening in the top piece of bread and the bottom piece of bread. How does verse 2 begin? He says, we had already suffered and been mistreated. And then see how the verse ends? Much opposition. Suffered and mistreated, a lot of opposition. Now you see what he says in the middle? He says, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel. See the visual there? Boldness to speak the gospel surrounded by suffering, mistreatment, opposition. Gospel ministry requires us to be bold, even though opposition might surround us, right? We'll get opposition, and we're called to be bold. So the next question on your outline, how much trouble exists in your relationships because of the gospel? You know, when I think about trouble in my relationships, it usually isn't because of the gospel. It's usually because of me and sin. In fact, if we're having trouble in relationships with other believers, it's probably because the gospel is not central. But do you see where there's conflict, where there's tension because of the gospel? What might be some reasons for the absence of trouble? Now, conflict and trouble is not the goal. That is not the goal. That's not what we're going for here. But if we are living out the gospel and we're proclaiming the gospel, probably going to have some opposition, don't you think? We live in a dark world that calls the gospel foolishness. So, something to give some thought to. Another question to give some thought to, what happens when opposition comes in your gospel ministry or because of the gospel? What should we do when opposition comes? Are we handling it in a Christ-like way? gospel-centered way? Do we know how to handle it? It can be so difficult. I think we've all experienced that in in, um, one way or another. Are we bowing to God's gospel purposes in that, allowing them to do God's work in us and through opposition and and trusting him for the outcome? Again, just some things to give some thoughts to, evaluate. So when we're engaging or when we are concerned first and most with Engaging people with the gospel. Gospel ministry is never hollow. It's never vain. It's never found wanting. And gospel-engaging ministry requires boldness when surrounded by opposition. And number three, gospel-engaging ministry finds its boldness. It finds its boldness in God alone. Paul said in verse 2, we have boldness in our God. That word boldness, it literally just means we have all speech. It's interesting. It's interesting that this word boldness is only used in the New Testament in a gospel proclamation kind of setting. It means a state of mind where words just flow freely with confidence, no restraint. Paul could just freely speak the gospel with confidence, regardless of his situation, regardless of opposition or suffering or mistreatment. And, I, and I, I just want to be more like that. See, because the boldness, it's in what? It's in God. It's not in self. It's in God. That's what he says in verse 2. 
We have boldness, and it's in God. It, it, it was not an, a natural ability to be bold. It wasn't because he had a bold personality. This freeness of speech, it was in our God. There was such a union um, between Paul and his God, our God. He was confident in that. He was confident in his union with Christ that he freely, just freely, boldly spoke. But wait, think about this. What was he surrounded by? He was surrounded by opposition, and I'm pretty sure that, it, that had I been in that situation, I may have been fearful. I may have been so fearful, I, I wouldn't say anything at all. I may not say anything at all, but Paul is a, is a great example. That's not how he, how he was, because conflict, comfort, his circumstances, they're not impacting Paul's speech. What's impacting Paul's speech? God. God's impacted Paul's speech. There is no opposition, no circumstance that would take away his confidence because it wasn't in himself. It wasn't in a situation. It was in God. What a great reminder for us. I have another question for you. What needs to happen daily to increase your God-given boldness to speak the gospel? Anything come to mind? Any wellspring discipline? Maybe number one, right? Shepherding our hearts to be with our God, to walk in nearness to him, positioning our hearts before his word, living out his presence in our lives. See, because the more aware we are of him, our God, the closer we are to him, the more the gospel is just going to flow. It's going to flow. We'll just overflow. And, and the less concerned will be about any opposition. And you know what? That just, it takes ongoing, lifelong heart shepherding. You see why we can't be passive in our time with the Lord, in his word? Discipline one says she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God, through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. We have to continually remind ourselves when we're in the Word that we are there to meet with Him and behold the gospel, who He is, who God is, to see our sin, to confess our sin, to turn, to repent, to see the sweetness and completeness of uh, what Christ has done for us on the cross. For our sin, remember, His wrath was satisfied. The cup is empty. I'm no longer a slave to it sin, to grow my understanding of who my God really is. And Paul understood this. He understood and he had confidence because he knew his God. If my God-given boldness to speak the gospel is going to increase, I must actively shepherd my heart with the gospel, with the gospel truths when I read. I need to grow in my knowledge and my awareness of him and who he is and and uh, what he's done and what he's doing and then I'll be ready right the second gospel centered truth for ministry is this in gospel centered ministry God himself is central in gospel centered ministry God himself is central there's several ways um, we see that in verse 1 the first way we see that God is central is he is the origin of our message and mission. He's the origin of our message and mission. We saw, we saw the start of it in verse 2. We have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel. And our boldness comes from God and our message comes from God. Paul says he spoke the gospel of God. And verse 3 states it negatively. Paul says, here's where our exhortation does not originate from. Our exhortation doesn't come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. And in verse 6, Paul describes himself as an apostle of Christ. So his mission, his ministry as an apostle, it doesn't come from himself or his own ideas or his philosophies. He's an apostle of Christ. An apostle means a sent one. And we're all sent ones. We're not apostles, but we are sent ones. 
An apostle is one who's called by Jesus, like the twelve, like Paul, but we're certainly sent ones. We are witnesses wherever God places us, in our homes, in our workplace, in our school, in our neighborhoods, Papua New Guinea, wherever he has us, we are witnesses. God's the origin of the message and the origin of the mission. We are sent ones and we belong to Christ. Now, the second way we see that God is central in gospel-centered ministry, number two, God purifies our exhortations. God purifies our exhortations. Verse 3 says, for our exhortation, and Paul needed to encourage, or whether Paul needed to encourage or he needed to admonish, it does not come from error, does not come from impurity or by way of deceit. His message was truth, his life was pure, his ministry was honest, it wasn't deceitful. He, he, he was without hypocrisy, without deception. He wasn't motivated by anything other than the gospel. And if our lives are going to be gospel-centered, this must be true of us too. True words, pure lives, honest motives, gospel-centered motives. And the third way we see that God is central in gospel-centered ministry, God tests us to entrust us with his gospel. God tests us to entrust us with his gospel. That sounds scary, doesn't it? Let's take a look and see what it means. Paul says in verse 4, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And this brings us to our second sandwich. I got messed up on my outline. So, you guys okay on your outline? Are you following along? Okay. So, do you see um, there's a piece, the top piece of bread, and there's a bottom piece of, of bread? And we're going to see um, where the verse starts and then where it ends. Verse 4 says, we've been approved by God, and then it ends with, um, or approved by God means we've been tested by God. And it ends with examined by God. And they're actually um, the same Greek word. It, it's this word, I think it's pronounced takamatsu or something like that. And it means it's a testing for the purpose of refining. It's the same word or idea used for purifying metal, to purify for the purpose of refining. The idea was when metal was melted down, um, the, the piece of metal was put to the fire. And as it heated up, all the dross and the worthless scum and the impurities would rise up to the surface. And then they would skim off all of that, all of that stuff, all the impurities as it would come up. And they would continue to heat it, continue to heat the metal, continue to take off all of those impurities until the one refining it could look in that metal and, and could see his own reflection. And at that point, it meant that uh, the impurities were out. At that point, it was pure. Now, the metal wasn't put to the fire because it was bad metal and they wanted to destroy it. No, they put it to the fire because they wanted to purify it. The idea with this word, to approve or to examine, it's not the idea to test us, just to show us our failures. It's for the purpose of getting rid of impurities, to purify us, so that his reflection can be seen in us. And that's it's an ongoing process. It's a gracious thing that God does. It's a good and positive testing. Is it always pleasant? No, it's not always pleasant. But it can, it can be really hard and it can be painful. But it's not for the purpose of destroying us. It's for the purpose of purifying us so that we can be more like Christ. It's a loving thing. It's a loving thing that God does. It's his grace even though it may not feel like it at, at, at times. Paul lived as a man who knew that God examined his heart and that he continues to be purified by God. So that's the bread, verse 4, starting and ending with the idea of being approved, being tested, or examined by God. Now what goes on in between that examination? To be entrusted with the gospel. Do you see that? So we speak. 
As believers, we've been entrusted with the gospel, so we too must live as women that know God examines our hearts. How do we live that way? Again, it's discipline one. We've been entrusted with the gospel. That's why we preach it first and most to our own hearts. The gospel is what prepares us to endure God's refining and benefit from God's refining so that we are more effective, so that we're more um, fruitful as ministers of the gospel. We want that, right? The fourth way that God is central in gospel ministry is that God opens my mouth. God opens my mouth. In verse 4, Paul says, As we've been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. If God is influencing us, we can't be silent. We won't be silent. We'll open our mouths and we'll speak. The gospel will just flow. The next way we see that God is central in gospel-centered ministry, number five, God is the primary audience. God's the primary audience. We saw it already in verse 4 when Paul said, um, we speak not as pleasing men, but God, who examines our hearts. And then again in verse 5, For we never came with flattery speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. He says that again in verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God. So Paul, he had this awareness that God was present, just as much as he was aware of the fact that men were present and watching. God's the primary audience of Paul's ministry. Well, actually, God's a primary audience of, of our ministry, of any ministry. He's the only audience that matters. So we just don't want to lose sight of that, do we? So what's the next way we see that God's central and gospel-centered ministry? Number six, God drops my mask. God drops my mask. Let's look at verse five. He says, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext. For greed. Paul was sincere. He didn't flatter. He wasn't manipulative. He wasn't trying to get something. He wasn't trying to hide anything. He didn't come with a pretext for greed. And pretext is the idea of hiding true motives to put on a mask, to cover something up in order to satisfy greed. And he didn't do that. Paul didn't do that. He didn't flatter them with a real intent of getting their money, though um, he may have been accused of that. So if God is central, we don't use flattery or put on a mask or cover things up in order to satisfy greed. Now, maybe our greed isn't necessarily money. Let's try to think of some ways that we might be tempted to be greedy. Maybe it's um, greed for approval or acceptance or, or for compliments, praise, recognition, Agreed for control. But he enables us to drop those masks, to drop any self-serving, to drop the self-grasping masks, and, and to seek to please the Lord, to have a genuine concern for others instead of ourselves. And again, this is about our hearts. This is about our, the motive of our hearts. The seventh way we see that God is central in gospel-centered ministry is that God humbles my use of authority. God humbles my use of authority. Now remember, we already saw that God's the primary audience in gospel-centered ministry. Paul said, God's my witness, my audience, the only audience that matters. And because of that, if I have any authority as a messenger giving the message of the gospel, it's not about me. God's the primary audience. Paul says in verse 6, Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. See, they had authority being apostles of Christ. Here's Paul. He's seen the risen Lord. He knew. He knew it wasn't about him and his authority because God was central in Paul's ministry. He didn't use his authority the way um, that would have just lorded it over them. There's a statement on your outline from Scott several years ago. He says, any authority I might possess in ministry or anywhere is not about me. Authority in ministry is always to be exercised under the approval, pleasure, and witness of God. Our first resort in ministry must not be the exertion of our authority for authority's sake. Once again, this is about our hearts, humility of hearts, understanding who I am in Christ. And now, authority is good. It's God-given. And when we're in a role of authority, 
We certainly need to exercise that authority, but we must do it in a humble, gentle manner for the benefit of others, not ourselves. That's gospel-centered ministry. So if you're a mom, it's going to apply to your parenting, right? In fact, if you have any role of authority, and there's a phrase that Paul uses to describe his authority in 2 Corinthians 13.10. You can write that down. I don't have it on your outline. He says that the Lord gave him authority for building up and not tearing down. For building up and not tearing down. So think about where we might be building up and where we might be tearing down. Well, the gospel compels us. It's the power in us. It leads us to use authority the way Jesus did. He's our greatest example. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Let's just take a look at Philippians 2, if you can turn there. Philippians 2, I'm not, he says, starting in verse 1, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude among yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being made in the appearance of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was the one with all authority. He was in the form of God, and he took on the form of a slave. That's what authority is supposed to do. That's what God does. That's who he is. He's a humble God in Jesus Christ. And when he saves sinners, and when he draws himself, draws us to himself, and sends us out in his name, that's where to be humble as well. Our third gospel-centered ministry. Centered truth, I'm sorry. Number three. A gospel-centered ministry is characterized by a motherly gentleness. It's characterized by a motherly gentleness. Verse 7 says, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. The verse starts off with the word but, meaning there's a contrast, meaning that we need to look back and see what that is. So let's look back. In verse 6, he says, Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle. Rather than men who might have thrown their weight and authority around, they were gentle, like a tender nursing mother. It's a stark contrast. They were men with authority, and he says we were gentle, like a nursing mother. A nursing mother, she either goes down to the level of her child. She brings her little helpless baby up to her level. She makes herself available in a sweet, tender, loving way. And Paul says, we were like that with you. We made ourselves available to you. We met you right where you were. It's a strong expression coming from a manly man like Paul. He's going to extreme lengths to show his commitment to gentleness and to care for their needs as babes in Christ. Moms, do you see how this can apply to parenting? Paul's example is so helpful and so impactful. As, as we parent or even grandparent, we too can get down on their level. We can seek to understand. We humble ourselves and remember our own struggle with sin and what Christ has done for us. And we confess sin when we sin against them instead of throwing authority around. We come alongside of them. We bring the gospel to them like a gentle, tender mother. The gospel's the milk they need. It's what changed us, right? And it's what nourishes us. And it's what others need for nourishment, too. That's gospel ministry for all of us to really try to understand those you're caring for at their level. 
So here's another question for you, and it's not on your outline. But think about this. At the end of the day, do you identify more with a gentle, gentle, tender, nursing mother or someone who is throwing authority around? Ouch, huh? Gospel-centered ministry is characterized by a motherly gentleness, and our example is Jesus. Another question from your outline, how well do you step into others' lives to build them up? Are, are there any new believers in your life whom you can nurture? Think of your children. Maybe women coming to our church, our small group, new to our body, maybe new to the Lord. And we have the privilege of reaching out to them with a gentle, even motherly care. Getting on their level, bringing them in, welcoming them. To nourish them with the gospel too. And you know what? I see and hear so many of you doing this. As you parent, as you minister to one another. And I learned so much from you. You're, you're an example to me. The fourth gospel-centered truth. Number four. A gospel-centered ministry will be satisfied with nothing less than deep affection for people. A gospel-centered ministry will be satisfied with nothing less than deep affection for people. Let's look at verse 8. It says, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of, gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. So we come to another sandwich. Let's take a look at the top piece of bread. How does verse 8 start? He has fond affection for them. And then how does it end? They were very dear to him. See that? Both parts, they basically say the same thing. On affection, very dear. And then see what's in the middle? He says, we are well pleased to impart the gospel and our lives. So for the bread, he says, you were dear to us, we loved you. He didn't even know these people before he got there. He was on the run from Philippi, remember, after being beaten? And he ministered to them. Even though he was there for just a short time. The gospel produced in him a love and an affection for them. Remember back in verses 1 and 2 how Paul said the gospel came? He says, For you yourselves know that our coming to you is not in vain. After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So Paul was relentless. He had a boldness in the proclamation of the gospel for sure. But then we get to verse 8 and we see this fond affection had a fond affection. You've become so dear to us. We wanted to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our own lives. These two things, boldness and affection, they go together. They're never disconnected. There's gospel content and there's gospel care. That's how we can think of it. Content and care, personal involvement. And we need to give both. Our goal is to give people the gospel. We must give others the content of the gospel without compromise. But that should never be disconnected from a caring relationship with people. And we're probably going to lean toward one or the other, favor one to the exclu exclusion of other. You know, some of us are very focused on being sure we give out the gospel. We're going to give out the gospel without really being as much concerned about how we give it. You know, you're going to hear this gospel content. It's the, it's the last thing, you know, you hear from me, regardless, with no affection. Have you ever done that? I have. Some of us, we might be more on the relational side. We might be inclined to think, you know, I need to build this really strong relationship and show the love of Christ, which you do. And just never, but never really get around to actually sharing the content of the gospel. Well, I've done that too. Now, there is something to building relationships for sure. But if, but if I'm not concerned to give the content of the most important message, the only hope they may ever hear, that's really not loving. It's not loving. And that's not what Paul was doing. So see, it's both. We give the gospel and we give ourselves. We impart our lives. And this is how we minister to one another as well. We all need gospel content, and we all need care from one another in order to build up the body. So here's a question for you. How is our effectiveness with the gospel impacted by the level or absence of affection for others? 
Is it easier for you to bring the gospel to people you do have an affection for, but not to those who may be just kind of annoying in your life? We see Paul, he was concerned for gospel content, and he was concerned for gospel care. They go together. We don't want to sacrifice one for the other. We want to strive to bring them together so there's no distance between them. So they happen simultaneously. The fifth gospel-centered truth, number five, a gospel-centered ministry keeps the path to the gospel clear. It keeps the path to the gospel clear. He says in verse 9, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. And his main point is, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. But then he says, remember that there was this labor and there was hardship and we worked. We worked night and day. Why? He says we didn't want to be a burden. He's probably talking about a financial burden here as a frontier missionary. Paul, he's the first Christian um, going into these areas with the gospel. Most often in those settings, Paul's practice was not to take any money until they were more established and the church was formed. But And then maybe he would accept gifts after that. But at this point, he didn't accept any financial assistance from them because he didn't want to be an obstacle to the gospel. He wanted a clear path. And to do that, he had to labor. He had a lot of labor and hardship. In fact, he says they worked night and day. And it's kind of interesting that he says night and day, not day and night. And it's possible that they worked nights or partly into the night in order to have part of the day to be able to minister to the people. So maybe he didn't sleep that much. Um, But they did that to keep a clear path. He didn't want to feel, he didn't want them to feel a burden. And there are times for us when we're ministering to others that we will need to make sacrifices to make a clear path for the gospel. Ministry requires sacrifice. So here's a question for you. One way we could apply this. Can you recall how an older, wiser believer personally made sacrifices for you so you could keep growing in the gospel? And then for whom will you seek to do the same? As you think about those um, that have sacrificed for you, think about the second question. For whom will you do the same? And start to pray that you would be an older, wiser Christian woman that can come, al- come alongside another woman who's younger in her faith. And again, it's so evident that you guys are examples to me, and I see you doing this, but let's be intentional in our ministry. All right, the last gospel-centered truth. Number six, a gospel-centered ministry's primary goal is transformation of life that is worthy of God. A gospel-centered ministry's primary goal is transformation of life that's worthy of God. And it takes us to our last sandwich, and this time it's between verses 10 and 12. Verse 10 is the top piece of bread, and verse 12 is the bottom piece, and they're similar. Verse 11 is is the meat what's in the middle so let's take a look at verse 10 it says you are witnesses and so is god how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers and now whose life is paul describing in verse 10 he's describing his own life right see paul lived a life that was above reproach he lived devoutly he lived blamelessly and uprightly and then look at verse 10 that's a bottom piece of bread he says so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So here in verse 12, whose life is he talking about? Anyone? Are you awake? He's talking about the Thessalonians. Their transformed lives. So in verse 10, we have the messengers, the sent ones. They have transformed lives. And then in verse 12, the ones they were ministering to who believed, what must they have? Transformed lives. Yeah. So gospel ministry is all about changed lives, transformation of life, life on life with the gospel so that our changed lives are laboring for changed lives and others' lives. It's, it's, that's, if, do you think about our wellspring purpose? Transformed lives? It's, it's not gospel-centered ministry if it's not interested in transformation of life. So there are the two pieces of bread. So now let's look at verse 11. He says, We were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. 
So they had this fatherly pursuit. That is what Paul sandwiched in between transformation of life. He says, we had a fatherly pursuit of your changed life, of your transformation of life. So the primary goal of gospel-centered ministry is always changed lives. And the way Paul describes the way he pursued and labored for their changed life is by comparing himself to a father after his own children. He says, each one of you, um, emphasizing individuals. As, As Paul thinks back on his ministry... He remembers that he spent time with each one of them, like a father spends time with each one of his kids. A father needs to shepherd each one of his children in a unique way, according to the need of the moment. Sometimes, in verse 11, we see it's an exhortation or a gentle encouragement, or um, a father's imploring his child with the gospel. Let's look over at uh, chapter 5, verse 14. He actually says something very similar. He says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. That's a very individualized ministry. We need to have individualized ministries, personal, thoughtful approach in each relationship. For example, unruly people, they do need to be warned. Maybe not so much encouraged at the moment, but warned in a soft kind of way. We don't want to admonish someone if they're faint-hearted, right? And we need to labor to know the difference. It takes prayer. It takes time together. It takes careful listening so that we can understand what's going on in each other's lives. We can't make assumptions. If I make an assumption, I might first think, you know, my friend, she's unruly. I need to warn her, but when I take time and ask questions and listen carefully, I may begin to realize, you know, I had no idea what's going on. As she shares her heart, I might discover she really needs encouragement. She needs to be encouraged, not admonished. And there's a difference, and we need to labor to know the difference. Sometimes we do need to give both encouragement and admonishment, always with patience. I know for me, my first response isn't always thankful for the help someone's offering me. But, you know what, as they encourage me and remind me of biblical truths in the gospel, by his grace, by his grace, my heart may soften. If not, then I probably do need to be admonished. And I'm thankful for those who bear with me and help me and drive me there to that level ground of the cross. Now, let's just talk about that word need for a moment. We really have to be careful with that word, with the word need. You know, when we're talking about assessing a need, ours or anyone else's, this is not something that's based on feelings. It's not based on feelings or what we think we have a right to. Rather, when we think of needs, as in, what does the person need? We should think think along the lines of Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification. That means building up according to the need of the moment so that it'll give grace to those who hear. So when we think about needs, we're thinking about how to give God's grace to someone so that they are built up in the faith. It's going after that transformation of life that Paul was so concerned with. That is the need. We're to be concerned with first and most. And then how we deliver that grace as admonishment for the unruly, as encouragement for the faint-hearted, as help for the weak, is determined according to the need of the moment. So gospel-centered ministry will always have a personal component. It's how we help one another grow in sanctification. It's how Paul ministered to the Thessalonians. He says, we're, we were exhorting some of you, we are encouraging other, others of you, we are imploring others, like a father does with each of his kids. And that's how we help one another. Um, All right. Let's look at verse 12 again. He says, I want to make sure, yeah. He says, so that... You would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So we're going to come back and we're going to finish with that verse. 
But for now, let's look at this. What does God do? He says he calls you. You see that? He calls you. He's not emphasizing here where God called you in the past tense, your conversion. God calls you is in the present tense. It means God's continually calling you into his own kingdom. It's true God already transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And now he's continually calling us into greater and greater knowledge and realization of him, his kingdom reign over our lives. It's, and, and, and that's what God is he's doing. He's so kind and tender. He's like a father. He is our father. He's calling us and he's saying, come on, my child. You need to see more. You need to know more. You need to experience more of my own kingdom reign in your life. What an amazing God. He's walking with us. He's continually calling us. And he's not done with us. We must still be called into greater and greater alignment with his will. And he won't stop until he's done. That's how great our God is. Isn't that comforting? All right. So how do we conclude this? What's the bigger picture of gospel-centered ministry? If you have to sum it all up, what would we say? Here it is. This is the inseparable combination in a gospel-centered ministry. Number one, you see at the, um, you see on your outline, number one and number two. Number one, it's proclamation. And then down below is demonstration. If we're going to have a gospel-centered ministry, we have to be about the proclamation of the gospel. Paul was all about proclaiming the word of God, pro proclaiming the gospel. And you see all of those references there on your outline under number one. Gospel-centered ministry is going to make believers open their mouths and actually proclaim Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. And a gospel-centered ministry is not going to stop there. If we learn anything from 1 Thessalonians 1... And two, it's that Paul didn't come in word only. We have to join the word being proclaimed with the word being lived out, demonstrated. That's the second point. Paul equally emphasized life-on-life life ministry. His gospel ministry was about one life engaging another. You see that under point two, demonstration. have all those out, um, references listed for you. So it's clear here. That if we're going to have a gospel-centered ministry, we need to open our mouths, proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners, raised from the dead, and all the wonderful gospel um, that's, that uh, are the benefits of the gospel. And we must be concerned with engaging people's lives. And the greatest example of all is Jesus. He's the greatest proclaimer. He's the greatest demonstrator. So the last question for you, how would you rate your own life in this combination? Where are you strong? Where are you weak? Why? Why? What needs to happen to grow in this? All right, so we say we have to, we'll come back to, uh, we're going to come back to verse 12. So we see that it starts with, so that. It's the whole reason why Paul did what he did. Here is the ultimate, that's the fill in the blank, ultimate motive in ministry. That's why. He was so concerned to pro proclaim and demonstrate. It's why he did all the things we saw in chapter 1 last week. He was concerned to have the right message, to be an uncommon messenger, to be imitatable, to be effective, to labor for repentance. It's why his ministry was concerned with what we've seen in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. Gospel-centered ministry engages people with the gospel. It's not hollow, and it requires boldness, even if there's opposition Gospel-centered ministry finds its boldness in God alone. He's central as the origin of our message and mission. Gospel-centered ministry has pure motives. And as he tests us to entrust us with the gospel, we can be confident it's for the purpose of purifying us out of his love for us, to be conformed to the image of his Son. By his grace, he opens our mouth. He's our primary audience, and he calls us and enables us to drop our masks. The gospel compels us. It's the power in us that leads us to use authority the way Jesus did as a humble servant. It's why he had a motherly gentleness, a deep affection for people. It's why he was willing to sacrifice and to take on hardship. It's why he labored for transformed lives. 
And why did he do what he did? What was his ultimate motive in ministry? Verse 12. He says, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's the result of the gospel. It's why God in his holiness and love provided a way through his son for sinners to be reconciled to himself. It's the power of the gospel. It transforms God-haters into those who walk worthy of him. And we participate. We participate in God's gospel transformation in our lives by shepherding our hearts with the gospel, with God's word, so we can be a servant, actually a slave of that gospel in our homes, in our church, and in the world. There's so much at stake, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious word. Lord, I, I pray that we would be women who would walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We thank you, Lord, that you are not done with us. We pray that we would honor you by being gospel proclaimers and gospel demonstrators in, um, in, our, in our homes, in our church, and in the world. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.